0: And welcome back to How to Save the Planet, the podcast where we dig into the solutions to climate breakdown and what they might mean for your life. I'm Fran.
1: And I'm Hey, So hey, Fran, how are you doing?
0: I'm good. I'm currently, um, you know, just planning a weekend full of lockdown enjoyment. I'm trying to fix a very bad hair dye job and do some gardening what are your plans I don't
1: think your hair looks bad at all
0: mate I've got a really good lamp on it's not good it's not
1: (laughs) worked (laughs) um what am I doing I mean I'm okay I'm just like you know I feel like I've been quite lucky in lockdown in many ways but I'm bored yeah not gonna lie um I want to go dancing but I can't I want to have a more exciting response when people ask me what I've been up to than I went for a walk in the park <laughs> for the seven thousandth time. Even though I am lucky to have a nice local park, um, but I've been watching lots of good telly. At least that's been sort of keeping me, keeping oh, it's me going. The little
0: things, it's the little things, isn't it? Um, so, for our audience, just a quick reminder: if you'd like to ask us anything about the podcast, uh, tweet us at, at friends underscore earth or use hashtag how to save the planet. Um, But let's get cracking on today's episode. Today, we are going to be talking about the economy um, and the idea that it's probably broken. We've got an exciting guest on the way. But before that, Danny, let's um, dive a little bit into the environmental world and what's going on there.
1: Okay, so do you want the good news or the bad news first?
0: Uh, I like to end on a high, so let's go with bad first.
1: Okay, good shout. So in October last year, Cumbria County Council approved the UK's first new deep cast coal mine in 30 years. There was initially hope from campaigners that the government would intervene and stop the project. But unfortunately, they decided in January that it was a local matter and decided not to step in. The Climate Change Committee have warned that the mine will add to global emissions. Supporters of the mine say we need it as the coal will be used for steel production to save importing steel. But actually, less than 20% of the coal would be used in the UK. And whilst we do need steel, there are alternatives and we need to invest in green methods of production using renewable energy that can create jobs and reduce our emissions. But there was a little bit of a twist on this news story last week because Cumbria council decided they would reconsider giving planning permission to the mine so this story might have a happy ending after all
0: oh yeah fingers crossed for the local community then
1: now do you want do you want the good news
0: Always. Give it to me.
1: <laughs> okay, so four Nigerian farmers working with Friends of the Earth Netherlands have won a pretty historic legal victory against one of the world's biggest polluters, um, which is Shell. Essentially, a court has ruled that Shell has to pay damages for oil leaks in the Niger Delta in 2008 that damaged farming in the villages of Goy and Aruma and impacted villagers' health. Shell has argued that they weren't responsible for damage by Shell Nigeria, um, even though they own the company, which is kind of an amazing claim. But this is a really exciting victory. It's not often that multinational companies get held accountable for the damage they cause, particularly in the world's poorest countries. So this could uh, set a really great precedent. So what do you think about that, Fran?
0: That... Is really exciting, not just obviously for the well, very excited, but not just for the villagers there, but yeah, as you said, for the precedent that that could set. Uh, just because so many of our multinational climate wrecking companies um, work overseas and work in uh, poorer countries, you know, could be our time that other communities get paid the damages and compensation owed to them. So, fingers crossed, and and great work by um, by the farmers' communities and by Friends of the Earth friends of the earth netherlands from the sounds of it
1: yeah it's great it's great to see justice being done
0: yeah i mean that's well, well done you summarize that far more succinctly than you did <laughs> 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 well so to um segue from that incredibly smoothly uh i do actually think both of these stories link to our topic today which is handy um about fixing the broken economy so for some context, if you listen to last month's episode, you'll know that we're going to be looking in detail at different elements of what we think a green and fair recovery from the pandemic looks like. And one of these is about fixing the economy, which I'll be honest, seems like a fairly tough existential topic. Um, what's your understanding of it, Danny?
1: Oh, it it's, a, it's a chunky one, the economy. <laughs> um <laughs> I, I, I studied um, economics at uni, um, and then I got really disillusioned um, with economics. Um, I felt like the stuff that I was learning about was really limiting, and it wasn't really talking about the real world, the real world of people's needs, whether it be, um, you know, Our living conditions and the houses we live in, the types of food we eat, um, our need for like social connections. um, It felt really abstract. Um, And it's only recently that I've started to get uh, interested in economics again. But I think for me, like when we talk about broken economy, it's an economy that isn't serving our needs, the needs of people and, and the other animals that we share this planet with. And it's also um, unsustainable in the sense that um, it doesn't allow for future generations to have the same uh, benefits that, that, that we've had. So what do you think? What, is, what does the broken economy mean to you, Fran?
0: <laughs> Danny, please don't put me on the spot. <laughs> I know so little. <laughs> um, from the very little I know, uh, it's basically that the... The measurement of our economy doesn't really show what's going on on the ground. Doesn't show how many people are in poverty. Um, doesn't show how many people are homeless. Doesn't show how many people are struggling with too many jobs and and you know not having a sort of a, a well rounded life. Uh, so that's what it means to me because that's evidently what's going on in the UK at the moment. And um, yeah, I'm sure you'll agree. There's a lot to dig into, which uh, we'll touch on. You know, things that really relate to all of our lives, like the way we rent and and, and how much we have to pay for heating and the sustainability of jobs. But um, it's lucky that we have uh, a bona fide expert to help us understand how it is that we measure uh, the economy and what different approaches we could take um, that we might look at. So we have uh, Adrian Bula, who's a senior researcher at the economic think tank Commonwealth. So, hi Adrian, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing?
2: I'm good, I'm all right, thanks. How are you guys?
0: Yeah, just uh, just tackling lockdown like everyone else with the standard walks and cooking nice food, I think. Is that how you've been getting through as well?
2: Yeah, pretty much, and gardening. I got lucky enough to have um, an allotment in the back of my house and so I've just been tending it. It was a bit of a trash heap when I moved in so I've been bringing it back to life. Oh that's oh, nice great.
0: to have a
1: project.
0: Yeah definitely yeah. <laughs> something to achieve. Is like everything at the moment. Um, so do you want to just first up give us a little bit about the background, your background and how you ended up in the job you're in?
2: Yeah so I work at a think tank called Commonwealth um, which is sort of dedicated to creating a democratic and sustainable economy. So that's obviously a bit of a vague phrase, um, but basically sort of just progressive economic policy. And I focus on um, the climate crisis. I sort of led our Green New Deal work. And specifically, my interest is the intersections of climate and finance and sort of the wider economy.
1: GDP is in the news a lot recently, particularly with um, the country facing a recession people worried about jobs. So can you explain to our listeners what GDP is and why it might not be the best way to measure the health of our economy and society?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So GDP um, stands for Gross Domestic Product. It's basically sort of the main indicator that we use to evaluate, you know, how the economy is doing. Um, And effectively, it is, it's a measure of like, the Bank of England defines it as a measure of like the size and health of the economy, which we can come back to as whether or not that's a legitimate definition or not. It definitely does the size, but basically it, it measures like the monetary value of all the sort of goods and services that are produced in the UK over a certain period of time. So that might be a year or you know, quarterly. And in the UK, the Office for National Statistics actually tries to do an estimate. Every month so that should give you a suggestion of sort of how fixated we are on this as as an indicator um, and i guess you know your question about whether or not it's it's you know a good idea as an indicator um i think you could probably tell by that definition there you know it measures the monetary value of, of goods and services because so, you know it's pretty limited as as an indicator so um, you know it's not really asking, you know, what is the economy supposed to be doing? So, you know, is our economy sustainable? Um, How much inequality? How much poverty is in our economy? Do we have a housing crisis? Are we meeting people's needs? It really doesn't touch on on any of those questions. It's really just a measure of sort of size and and growth. Um, And so there are lots of kind of I think interesting examples to show where that kind of falls apart. So for example, you know, unpaid work, so the work of caring, caring for your kids, for the elderly, or housework things to just feed people and keep households running. Um, because there's no money exchange there, none of that is counted as you know contributing to the economy under the sort of GDP definition, which I think all of us could probably agree that all of those things keep the economy running, as well as sort of our lives and well-being um running and so you know under a gdp method if if you take care of your own kids doesn't count in the calculation you're not contributing to the size and health of the economy according to the definition but if you and your neighbor were to swap each other's kids and pay each other to care for each other's children that would be a contribution to the size and health of the economy so there are lots of like silly kind of examples like that that sort of poke holes in it as a measure.
1: So how does our obsession of GDP, this measure that we're using, affect the decisions that are being made uh, by politicians um, and maybe even by by ourselves, uh, us little people?
2: (laughs) Us little folk, yeah. Um, So I guess sort of it it permeates everything really. Um, So I think Probably the best way to explain it is to look at a really, really recent example, which is, you know, people may have seen all sorts of outrage floating around about um, the Green Homes Grant, um, which the Conservative government announced last year, um, which was meant to provide over two over a few years, two billion uh, pounds worth of grants for people to um, insulate their homes. Do you know, double glazing, loft insulation, all sorts of upgrades to make them sort of more sustainable? Um, and that was announced uh, last year and since then it was supposed to have sort of a cutoff date of March 2021 so next month for the first sort of tranche of funding which is supposed to be one and a half billion pounds over that over that year um, so far less than five percent of that has actually been paid out um, because there's sort of a catastrophe in delivering those grants and it's just been a huge mess um, and so then the next part of it, which is supposed to go from March of 2021 to March of 2022, was going to be the remainder of that £2 billion. So just under sort of half a billion pounds was left. Um, and in Parliament uh, last week, I think, or a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, one of the business ministers was asked, now that we sort of haven't delivered the vast majority of that £1.5 billion this year, will it be rolled over so that as the system sort of actually becomes functional, will actually deliver the full £2 billion stimulus for green homes, it was announced. Um, and her answer to that was no. <laughs> um, and the response was that the green homes grant was intended as a short-term stimulus during the pandemic. And that, to me, really, really captures, I think, how GDP informs pretty much everything about how our economy is run. Because the fact that, you know, a tiny segment of the grants that were meant to be given to make people's homes more affordable, to make them more sustainable. The fact that almost none of that happened compared to their targets doesn't matter in the context of the fact that, oh, that was meant as a short term financial stimulus. And now that the economic context has changed and it looks like we might be on the way out of the pandemic, you know, we actually don't need that stimulus anymore. So we're just going to drop, you know, 75 percent of the original commitment we made because the focus there is on what would be the impact of this program for for GDP and for the sort of economic recovery in those terms, rather than, I think, as most of us would think about it, you know, what were the impacts on how insulated people's homes were? What were the impacts on carbon emissions? You know, how have they addressed fuel poverty through that program, which is a huge problem in this country? And so all of those kind of fall prey to the fact that GDP is the priority. And I think yeah, that's just sort of one example of how it's the most important metric by which we measure policy a lot of the time.
0: Super, super simple question. When you say stimulus, what mm. what does that mean?
2: Yeah, so uh, kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's meant to stimulate the economy, but basically it is, you know, in COVID, um, we've had a massive shutdown of the economy for good reason. Um, but as we come out of that, basically to help it sort of bounce back and to sort of grow quickly again to get people in jobs where businesses may have closed and all sorts of things like that. Um, sort of the state uh, sees itself stepping in and providing what it calls a stimulus, which is basically investment on the part of the state in the things that we need to create jobs and sort of get the economy moving again. Um, so the Green Homes Grant, they sort of viewed as a job creating stimulus um which in and of itself is a great idea people really needed jobs and they needed secure forms of work particularly in the kinds of jobs that will be present in a green economy um but they no longer sort of seem to think that that is as much of a priority in the current context it appears so yeah
0: so what sort of um issues does that cause in the uk by measuring the economy in that way
2: oh gosh where to begin (laughs) um (laughs) Well, um, so I think, you know, yeah, absolutely. As I said, there there are lots of issues with it insofar as we have this obsession on it as an indicator of how the economy is performing. And I think we've seen that in COVID, right? Aside from the unemployment rate, you know, hits to GDP of the pandemic has have really, like, overwhelmingly been how people look at what the impact of the pandemic has been. Um, you know, we hear less about the impact on sort of, homelessness, on sort of a rampant escalation and inequality, um, and all sorts of things like that. So when we fixate on, on GDP as an indicator, we tend to neglect the actual questions of, you know, what is the economy for? Because growth and sort of the size of it becomes an end in and of itself, as opposed to asking, you know, what is the function of that growth? What is the function of those increases in size and of that production, and are we meeting any of the things that we actually care about, like well-being and sustainability, and you know, better equality and education, and you know all of those kinds of outcomes? So, because of our fixation with GDP in the UK, a lot of things um, get sort of you know. Sacrificed on the altar of GDP growth. Um, One of them is sort of environmental sustainability. So again, you know, if you are a company that that pollutes a river, say, and you have to clean that up yourself, that is sort of irrelevant to GDP and or actively sort of a drain on it, because that incurs a cost to you as a business. But if you don't have to clean it up, and you have to pay another company to do it, or another company gets paid by the government to clean up the mess that an oil company has left in the ocean or river. That's actually a contribution to GDP. So again, it like rewards that kind of activity, in theory. So the whole thing is just kind of you know counterproductive to meeting some of the outcomes that we that we actually care about. And and the last point I'll come to on that is that in the UK, um, I'm sure we've all sort of felt the bite of sort of escalating housing prices and sort of the, housing crisis in the UK, um, as, you know, generation rent as we are. Um, and a lot of that comes down to how much of a focus there has been in the UK on sort of the financial economy um, and how much sort of financial services in the city of London have become sort of the, you know, a huge contributor to our GDP and to our economy, um, when for a long time, actually, finance wasn't even counted Uh, in the measure of GDP because it was considered like an unproductive, didn't have sort of like a material productive contribution. It's actually considered sort of like a net zero, if you will, um, on economic growth. And so following that, you know, the fact that we now count financial services as a contribution to GDP, because these are all sort of arbitrary decisions in the calculation, means that The fact that, you know, housing prices, housing is now treated as a financial asset rather than something that meets people's needs. And that, you know, we have cheap mortgages and a huge amount of speculation from buyers, you know, lots of buy to let properties, people treating homes as portfolios rather than as homes. When it comes to GDP, you know, that's not really a problem because you've got people making loads of money off this, buying homes is contributing to that. And the fact that that's driving a housing crisis isn't a problem as far as economic growth is concerned.
0: How does that um, relate to rent? Because I rent. Imagine I lost my job and I was lucky enough to have some savings to keep on renting for a few months. Would it mean that if I was still paying my rent to my landlord, I'd still be contributing to GDP even though I've got no output from a job? Is that?
2: Yeah yeah absolutely. So, as long as you know someone is is making that money and that's just sort of you know your landlord just owning a property, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, that would be a contribution. It's worth noting as well that even homes sitting empty make a contribution to GDP.
1: I think for a lot of people economics is like a really difficult subject it's often seen as not very accessible um in some ways like I think I'm quite a bad interviewer for this podcast because I'm also an, an economics nerd uh, I studied economics at uni um and it can get like economics can <laughs> get very jargony um so Fran please call me out uh, I, if I use any jargon I am
0: balancing you out I have no idea um, genuinely um, think, no idea you know,
1: when we talk about GDP. Um, you, you mentioned the housing crisis and, and people's needs not being met, for example, homeless people. What are the other types of needs that are not being met um, in our economy as a result of our obsession with with GDP and economic growth?
2: Yeah, I think the biggest one that people come back to a lot is, is definitely sort of inequality in both income and wealth, right? So GDP is meant to say that on average, you know, people in our economy are becoming wealthier. So when you hear politicians talk about it, that's sort of always a position they take. You know, GDP rose by X amount this year, which means that as a country, we're wealthier. But it actually says nothing about sort of the distribution um, of that wealth in the economy. So it could be that a majority of people by number are actually worse off. But in aggregate, you know, we've produced more and incomes have been net higher. Um, And so it just often is quite divorced from people's lived realities. Um, And so there are a whole load of things, but definitely inequality is probably the biggest one. And again, the other, which I'll come back to again and again, is sort of sustainability and and sort of climate and environmental crises, because GDP has has very little interest uh, in those things in sort of the near term. Although, I mean, if you sort of... Pay attention to the IPCC processes or how sort of politicians talk about the climate crisis. A lot of people advocate for making changes because somewhere down the line, it will cost, you know, trillions to global GDP each year. That's sort of the framing that people tend to use. Um, so it does sort of sneak back in there in the long term. <laughs>
0: So, IPCC, can you just uh, explain to our listeners who they yes. are? <laughs> uh,
2: the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So, it is the sort of UN affiliated body of scientists, government officials, various experts, um, all of whom give us the sort of projections um, and scenarios that we have for how we should be cutting emissions. So, the people who decide that we should be net zero by 2050, uh, that's the
1: IPCC. And they sort of are uh, advisory group to to the world. I think one of the one of the best things I've read about the environment and our economy is a book called Donut Economics by Kate mm-hmm. Rayworth. and she, I think she frames it in in such a interesting way. She talks about how um, instead of endlessly pursuing economic growth, we should be thinking about how can we meet all of the needs of people and, and other animals on this planet, uh, while without damaging the life support systems in our planet. You know, we we can be agnostic about economic growth in the sense that it's only useful if it is in service of meeting the needs of people. So
0: what are some measurements that could work that wouldn't be reliant on our, as, as Danny put it, our obsession with GDP?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a huge range of things, right? And I think... Um sort of the again we'll come back to the donut model which does a really good job of identifying you know the two kinds of sets of indicators that i think we need to use which is making sure that we're sort of living within planetary means so an indicator that shows how sustainable the economy is in terms of carbon emissions in terms of resource use in terms of resource recycling all of those things and then the other being you know an economy that meets all of our needs in terms of sort of health, education, sort of well-being. And there are lots of different ways that we could evaluate how our economy is doing. Um, You could also use measures of inequality as an important measure of how the economy is doing because we know inequality is really strongly related to all sorts of other indicators like health, like well-being. Um, All sorts of those things tend to fare better in economies that are less unequal. So it would be a really good yardstick. Um, with which to measure a whole lot of of other things that we care about. But I think it really is sort of the argument there is is moving away from needing GDP to be the only indicator, Um, as you said, Danny, being agnostic about it um, and just sort of seeing it as one of a large set of things that we should care about rather than sort of the be-all and end-all.
0: If we um, counted GDP among many metrics from which to measure the health of an economy mm-hmm. and a society. What would that mean, bringing it back to the issue of housing? You know, there are a lot of us considered as generation rent, and it can be frustrating for some of us, you know, stuck in badly insulated uh, renter properties. But then, you know, there are obviously like really precarious situations for some people. If we were to shift the way that we measure the economic health and the economic well-being of, of our society, how could you see some of those issues around housing change under a new system of measurement?
2: Oh, there's just so many ways. So I think I'll take it back to sort of the Green Homes Grant to start, right? So I think we would, for starters, recognise the importance of the other policy outcomes of that rather than just a stimulus for GDP. We'd recognise that that programme should absolutely be rolled over because we haven't yet delivered on decarbonising people's homes, on creating long-term secure jobs or any of the other metrics, um, that I think, and I think most reasonable people think should be important out of that. Um, I think it would also have a significant impact on housing crisis in the UK. So again, we'd be able to see that, yes, as you know, there are enormous property bubbles that might be great for, you know, the city of London and therefore, you know, contribute to the GDP. You know, we'd also recognize that those soaring house prices, um, have a hugely negative impact in terms of the affordability of housing, in terms of homelessness, um, in terms of, you know, the amount that all three of us are sort of paying of our incomes, uh, just to rent a home. Um, and, and I think sort of that would be much more readily recognized. Um, I think it could also have an impact on sort of the sustainability of housing because right now, you know, property values, when your properties are sort of viewed as part of a financial portfolio and sort of there's so much ability to just buy up lots of properties, to speculate and to charge people rent on them because we have sort of tax systems that sort of don't penalize that. Um, You know, houses are viewed as just a financial asset and the sustainability of that house, the comfort of that house, whether it's insulated, whether people live in it um, has much less bearing a lot of the time on the value of the home uh, than just, you know, property speculation. And because we care about, you know, economic growth and GDP, you know, those kinds of things can be overlooked in a context where you're prioritizing sort of the growth side of that equation. So sort of removing um, our, the notion that, you know, the growth delivered by, you know, a housing bubble is good. Um, would allow us to focus on the fact that we've created a housing crisis, and that homes are really unsustainable, um, and that you know the value of that asset might be completely divorced from the fact that you know it's not warm enough, and it's not safe, and and all sorts of other things like that. Um, so I think, yeah, again, you know, it may be that, and it's highly likely, in my opinion, that if you were to do something like a Green New Deal where you invest in a ton of you know retrofitting and you know, creating green homes. And it's very likely that GDP would rise in the near term because you'd be creating lots of jobs, you'd be doing lots of productive spending, you'd be putting that into something that's really useful, but that wouldn't be the goal of it. The goal of it would be making you know sure that everyone has a warm, sustainable home to live in. And so GDP might start to fall at some point in the future, and that wouldn't be a cause for concern. I think it can just sort of be put to the side as, as a measure.
0: And retrofitting, just to clarify, is retrofitting insulation in houses? That look yeah, up? so
2: taking, you know, all, if any of us like me live in an old building, you know, adding insulation, double glazing, and maybe upgrading your heating system from, you know, a gas boiler to a heat pump or something like that.
1: Yeah, so I'm sitting in a house right now looking at my single glazed window. Um, if my landlord is listening to this podcast, I hope that he puts in double glazing as soon as possible. Also fix my door. I told him about that three weeks ago and he still hasn't done it. Um, but what, what sort of policies would be needed to convince landlords such as mine to properly insulate houses?
2: <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that because actually the, the Green Homes Grant wasn't such a bad idea in that respect the, the one sort of flaw with that kind of grant is it's always based on on home ownership. So people that live in the home are really motivated to use it, obviously. Um, and there's an argument that gets made that you know landlords are also interested in it because you know warmer homes make happier tenants. Um, you can sort of raise the rent uh, in accordance with having a better insulated home, and that I think is the wrong argument to be making. Yeah, completely. Um, I, yeah, I think this kind of grant should should come with. Stipulations that sort of prioritise renters, so you know a legal requirement that all houses should be within a certain band of energy efficiency, and that you know no new gas boilers can be put into homes. Everything from here on out has to be you know a carbon efficient option. I think those kinds of things should necessarily come into play when you're also giving these grants, which are a good idea, but need to come I think with with limits. But I think that would be you know a really useful combination policy. Um, you know, before the 2019 election, Labour had a big policy announcement called "Warm Homes for All, um, which, you know, whatever your political persuasion, I think was objectively just a really excellent policy. Um, it basically was a plan for by 2030, retrofitting all of the UK's housing stock and doing so through a mixture of sort of uh, low cost loans to better off households versus grants um, to low income households and sort of partly paying for that through energy savings and and all sorts of things like that. Um, And it was, yeah, a pretty airtight policy for actually making sure that renters, every household sort of gets a carbon efficient house, but doing it in a way that would also address sort of inequalities that are baked into the system.
0: You've given us a lot to think about and um, a lot to read as well. I feel like I need to go away and read, um, which is always a good thing. But um, just to like end on a high, what is it that gives you hope? it's a big one <laughs> <laughs> um
2: what is it give me hope um i guess this would be like kind of a cliche but through a lot of my work i have to engage with have to that sounds terrible i get to engage um, with sort of uh, yeah with the youth as it were so sort of steam climate strikers and a lot of like incredible young people who are just out there advocating and even you know if you go on tiktok gen z gives me faith because they're out there making tiktoks of like here's how climate change works and how you can reduce carbon emissions or demand political change so that gives me a lot of hope because i feel like there's an incoming group of people that are just so much um more you know clocked into the issues that we face and really care about it and are so connected to each other in a way that that can be really powerful
0: Thanks so much for joining us. Um, Where can people find you if they want to know more about your work?
2: So uh, the organization I work for is called Commonwealth, but it is impossible to Google, as you can probably imagine. (laughs) There's about a million of those, (laughs) but it is (laughs) Common Space Wealth Think Tank. Um, And also I'm on Twitter at um, Adri Buller. So A-D-R-I-B-U-L-L-E-R. And I'm on there most of the time ranting about climate and ecological issues
0: so you can find me there (laughs) great well thank you so much for joining us
1: yeah thank you so much thanks so much for having me Well, that's us done for today. Thank you for listening this far into the podcast. If you liked what you heard, and maybe even if you didn't like it, but you'd like to give us another chance, give us a like or subscribe and get in touch if you have any questions. Um, You can like us or subscribe to the podcast on whatever platforms you get your podcasts on, or drop us an email at podcast at foe.co.uk.